So tonight I want to talk, uh, the title of the talk is Aligned with Awakening. Now, uh, for those of you who wonder how this retreat will move, I said it very uh, straightforward in the uh, description, uh, in the brochure. I said for sincere practitioners that would like to move in the direction of freedom pointed by the Buddha. So that's what the retreat's going to be about. And for some of you, the effect of that will be anything but liberating. It seems to be that a small contingent of people who listen to my talks uh, contract in a kind of fear response to them. Certainly not my meaning and purpose of the talk. And a larger percentage... Uh, take the challenge and move expansively uh, with the challenge. <clears throat> but I don't know which, who in the room is which. And so I just give each, uh, I just give a talk and then uh, deal with the fallout in the, interv- in the interviews. So something magnificent is beginning to happen to each one of you. It's been happening for some time and uh, it has relative speeds depending upon how we infuse our intention within it. And we are making ourselves, allowing ourselves really, to move from being unconscious to consciousness. And all of the fallout, all of the internal uh, struggle, uh, the... Uh, difficulty in the course of today and quite likely tomorrow and for some part of each day of the retreat is what it looks like when an unconscious mind becomes conscious. That's what it looks like to awaken. That struggle. I don't know anyone who was able to bypass it. So each of us are right where we need to be in the course of that evolution of spirit, and, and it's extraordinarily important evolution of spirit. If you look at the uh, condition of humankind, uh, I, for one, grieve by the loss of its potential historically, because uh, the history books read like a, a murder or mystery. Uh, It's not hard for us to see that in any way that we look at our species, uh, it's a failed species. We have uh, uh, had moments of of worth and uh, beauty and love. I don't want in any way suggest that that hasn't been part of the course of our species. But if we look at those times when true love has expressed itself on the world stage, it's because that person in that particular moment has lost his or her self-centeredness and is able to express something in fulfillment. But for most part, we are a very self-centered species. In fact, uh, just to give you a few indications of that, I was reading where uh, by the end of this century, so 90 more years, 
half of the remaining species will have been extinguished from the planet. Also, that since World War II, some 200 million people have died violently. And by the year, I believe it is 2050, so 40 more years, the temperature, average temperature on this continent will increase by 13 degrees. Now, we are the cause of that, our self-centeredness. And I say this not to instill blame and shame in all of us, but to, for us to take stock of the kind of species we are and to put an end to it. And I don't mean suicide. <laughs> I mean changing the paradigm that we are caught within, that, we, that transfixes us. It's, I feel the urgency, and I will continue to express the urgency. And if I have to walk around with a placard saying that Chicken Little was right, I'll do that. Because I really feel the pressures of it. And I get a lot of emails from my sangha saying, why don't you tone that part of you set yourself down? And I say, I can't. It's like Rome is burning. Why don't we see that? It's like, do we want to just fiddle our way on beyond uh, reach because I think we're still within reach and I think there is a, a cosmic strategy to the uh, precipice we're facing and that is that if you look at your own life quite likely you entered your spiritual journey through despair through, um, through the sense of um, of having bottomed out in a particular way in your life and having no other recourse but to move in a direction counter to uh, your conditioned tendencies. Now as a species, my hope is that we have nowhere to move now. We don't have anywhere to turn. We can't keep milking the level of comfort that we have been. And because that is our the way we operate as a species is to move more and more towards a level, a deepening level of comfort, and that has been taken away from us because of the diminishing resources, etc. That there may be a crisis of spirit that the whole species face that will move us in the direction of a paradigm shift. Now, a paradigm shift is not just a slight modification of the way we have been, it's a p- complete change in the way we have been. Many of us find ourselves nurturing our differentiation, our isolation, our separateness. We're not to the point where we feel the impulse to change at all. In fact, the desire and fear seem to be working very well for us. And desire and fear will work well for us as long as we externalize the pain that is caused from desire and fear. As long as the pain that, is, that comes back, that has to come back from our need to isolate from one another, to be separate from one another, to distance ourselves from the rest of the world, that pain, create, that distance creates pain. But as long as we can assert that the pain was caused by 
fill in the blank, the neighbor with a barking dog, my partner, the boss that doesn't understand me, or whatever, then we will continue to work the desire and fear mechanism trying to gain an advantage. And that's what we have been doing. And that's why we have been doing it. And so there's a level of sobriety that each of us need to come to when we realize that working life in terms of desire and fear and further differentiation, because that's what desire and fear does, it differentiates us. If I'm desiring something, I have to separate myself from that something I want. If I fear something, I have to separate myself from that which I fear. And so it requires a sense of isolation and aloneness. And that's the paradigm that we have been working with. That's the paradigm that has fit our, our strategies very well on this earth. Until now, we've been able to get by with it. And it's interesting in this lifetime, my lifetime, we have reached, um, we've been pushed and pushed and pushed and now we've reached the point where we have no more maneuverability. Even when I was a boy, uh, there was no thought of, of resource allocation. There was no thought of, of climate control. There's no thought of that. It was just in the last few years, really, that that has come uh, on the stage. So what is it? Well, first of all, let us look at what this paradigm we're in looks like. And let's just be honest. I, I, I appeal to your honesty this morning and last night. I appeal to your sincerity. Because if we're not willing to really look at the problem, there will, be, there will not be a solution. The solution comes from looking at the problem. comes from understanding the nature of the fix we're in. So, you know, if you look at this sense of I, the I is the cornerstone of our existence. We appear to be the center of the universe. In fact, every experience we've ever had confirms that we are the center of the universe because it all comes into me. It's like this giant funnel that has its end point at, at the center of me. And there has never been an experience in which you have not been the center. And therefore, you and I think of ourselves as the center of the universe. Now, if you have seven billion people who think of themselves as the center of the universe walking around on the same planet, we have got a problem. Because let me tell you, cosmologically, there is no center to the universe. Cosmologists tell us that this enormous expanse, which they can measure, the mass of, and let me just, the mass of the universe, if measured, when measured, is 10 to the 53rd kilograms of mass. That's the weight, that's the mass of the sum total of all the galaxies, all of the constellations, all everything. That's the sum total of all the mass. Okay, don't ask me how they came up with that figure. But wait a second here. 
the I've, I've been watching uh, this man, this professor, on uh, one of the great courses, cosmologist, and he said, um, but you can't stop there. He says, because gravity has a negative effect on the mass. So if you look at the total summation of the negative input, just stay with me here, I know this is a little bit, but it has a point. If you look at the total weight of the negative effect on mass, you come to 10 to the minus 53 kilograms. He said, as a scientist, the universe sums to zero. And he said, since each atom, since each particular matter of matter has its own weight and therefore its own gravity, each thing, each object sums to zero. And in his expansion of the universe, he says there is no center. In fact, the space that the universe is expanding into is created by the very universe itself. It's not expanding into something. It's creating the space that it expands into. So isn't that mind-boggling? You see, the mystery beyond the mystery. But the point is that no matter where we point, in whatever direction, there's just more of the same in this homogenous universe. And yet we, on this small planet, seem to have countered that understanding by claiming ourselves as the center. And the reason we do so is because we have built upon a sense of identification with ourselves as opposed to with other other forms, other expressions that we live with. And so we have pushed this particular paradigm of self-centeredness to the very edge of non-existence for ourselves. And now we have to we have to sober up. We have to regain a correct view. And that's at the heart of what the Buddha was talking about in terms of where freedom lies. He says it doesn't lie in self-centeredness. It lies, he did not use these words, but they're an approximation. He says that it lies in union, in interconnectedness. Now interconnectedness is a proximity of emptiness. It's what I like to use as a way for us to move in a wise direction towards the emptiness that he was pointing towards. But the word emptiness has so much uh, baggage that most of us are afraid of that word. We don't want to really hear the word empty. It feels too desolate, too isolating, too lonely because we project out from a sense of ourselves being empty and we think, oh, geez, it's just more of the same. It's more of an isolation. It's being cut off even more, which isn't at all what it holds experientially. It holds everything. But I think interconnectedness is more aligned with our propensity towards the heart, 
towards union, towards togetherness. And so the meditation, if it's going to work in a proper relationship to this new paradigm shift, has to move in accordance with interconnectedness. So what has happened to us since we have sat down here is that we have begun, continued the process, because all of us began it long ago, continued the process of learning how to move consciousness towards more interconnectedness, more abiding within the reality of wholeness, which is conscious, consciousness, which is awareness. And that which we try to protect or keep hidden or keep isolated from our view because it doesn't fit the identity that we hold for ourselves is where we are unconscious. And so we resolve in our minds to defend what is unconscious and to move little pieces of ourselves forward so that we can begin to see consciousness working. But the big prize, the things that we really don't want to share, we don't want to uh, open our eyes to, that we continue to assert a great deal of denial around, are many, many of our emotional behaviors, our uh, secretive caved areas of discretion in ourselves and all of the different ways that we believe ourselves to be inauthentic and etc. So this this sense of union holds a potential resolve to the problem of isolation. And as you see, as the practice begins to move us into more connection with ourselves first because unless we connect with ourselves we can never connect with the external world because the internal world creates the external world and until we connect to the internal world we'll never feel any sense of connection to the external so I hope everyone understands that I'm, I'm passing by um, 101, 102 and 103 in Dharma talks <laughs> Okay, because I, I want to bring us all up to speed here very quickly. And I also acknowledge that many of us are caught within certain patterns of self-dislike, uh, unworthiness, inadequacy that we have worked with and will continue to work with right on through our interconnecting, our connection in Dharma, which they could, it works very nicely hand and foot with the process of union. So it's not something that you have to resolve completely first in order to move towards interconnection, but you have to bring it up. You have to you have to look and see whether that you're working in a way that allows a sense of self-love to flourish. Because we love ourselves to death. That's how the work is consummated, as it should be. So as we begin to connect more and more with our internal life and we become less reactive to our internal life, we become less obje- um, less uh, uh, judgmental around it, the more our heart opens and lets our life in, the more we begin to relax to ourselves as we are And through that relaxation, 
that begins to change our perception of being an isolated entity of me in here and everything out there to a sense of connectedness with life, a sense of oneness. That's how it works. That's how it works. And probably many of you have begun the process of actually perceiving that sense of oneness, connectedness, in moments of quietude, in moments of of uh, steadiness and relaxation. It's a beautiful, beautiful journey of the heart that occurs. But, as you can see, mostly we live still within the heavy, uh, empowered, old paradigm of self and other. Even while we're moving through it, journeying on the cushion, still the sense of me having the meditation experience is probably the primary one that we could own. And so it feels as if somehow this sense of interconnectedness can be, is being misperceived. And we may be working very diligently for it and towards it, but it feels very remote to many of us and something like a special prize at the end of a long and arduous spiritual path. I'd like to suggest that it's the way we work that will determine the results and that there has to be three uh, components of the way we work uh, that have to be aligned in direct relationship with one another in order for this to actually move us in the direction we most desire. Now, if the direction you most desire is not in terms of connectedness with yourself and with others, then I'm speaking to the wrong crowd. I don't know what your expectations are for your practice. But if you just remember that wherever you cash in your chips, wherever you say that's enough for your practice, you will have improved some. But the paradigm will continue and history will repeat itself as long as that paradigm has not shifted. So just just to, to really get a sense of how important this is. Now what are those three uh, aspects of practice that must be in aligned with one another in order for this practice to pay off in terms of a complete paradigm shift? Well, the first one I've just spoken about, which is wise view. And unless we have some sense of where this is going, and most of us don't, it's just amazing to me that we can practice for as long as we've practiced and have no idea, no real sense of where this thing might go. We just kind of listen to whoever the teacher of the moment is and we get pulled into doing that. We feel compelled to keep doing it, but we have no direction. And it's a little bit like being on a raft and paddling in many different directions. You never really move in coordination with your deepest intimation of what this thing is about. So that sense of wise view that this is moving us out of the paradigm of individuation, out of the paradigm of separation, Now, I don't know how that's done, but this 
must be what the Buddha was talking about, pointing towards, indicating, directing us. Because he said at the basis in the the center of his teaching was selflessness, anatta. That there is no permanently abiding sense of self. Now, if that's the centerpiece, and yet we think that is the central issue for our being the center of the universe, and that isn't true, then you can see the whole universe falls apart when it doesn't have a center. And therefore, what's left may be much more of a sense of togetherness, of union, than a bunch of centers trying to work in that cooperative way. So this sense of wise view is extraordinarily important. But that's not the only thing. Because wise view without an intention, for instance, I was at a Krishna Das chanting evening, very beautiful, no way despairing that chanting, singing to God, Sri Ram and all the other chants he does, beautiful. And everybody in the room was obviously feeling a sense of interconnectedness, was obviously feeling a sense of oneness, that the chanting was taking us out of our individuation and showing us the possibility of the fruition of our yearning. And yet, there was no intention to move that in that direction once the chanting ended. And so the chanting ended and then people sort of had a nice feeling for one another, perhaps as long as they got into the parking lot because I heard a lot of horns being honked. (laughs) So you see that, you see that this, this thing has to have something that compels it forward. It just can't be a view. You get taken off there. I mean, that's what drugs were. They gave you a, a glimpse and then it closed back down. And there was, you were left without an intentionality for your life. So the intentionality with wise view, there has to be wise intention. Now, if there's wise view and unwise intention, which is the way most people practice. So I want to spend just a little bit of time on this. You see, this particular paradigm we're in has its own resources. It has its own laws. It has its own rules. It has its own way of working. When we're the center and we think of things in isolation to us, then the way we work is to try to overcome difficulties. We try to surmount difficulties. We try to solve problems, right? That's the way separate things act upon one another. That's the rule. That's the governance of a paradigm of separation. Now, you can hear about oneness. You can hear about union and interconnectedness but still be motivated to overcome. So you're using unwise intention with wise view. Do you see? That takes you nowhere. That just spins you around in circles. And most of us have spent a great deal of time not aligning our practice with a perspective and an intentionality that allows this to move forward. Now, what is? Let's just go through this for a second. Unwise view and unwise intention. Well, unwise view would be, you know, I want I 
sense of I want to get to heaven. Now, I'm not in any way faulting uh, people who hold that view, but from our perspective, from our understanding, it's completely unwise because it doesn't do anything to the paradigm. It just sets a goal for the paradigm and has you work ambitiously to do that. And the way people work cooperatively is to hold those people within the group, like-minded people, a certain way, and people who are outside of the group a different way in hostility. So you can see that there's still a lot of divisiveness within that shift, within that thought of me wanting to get to some place which will be what? Which will be pleasurable. But aren't you tired of that? I mean, I'm, I don't want to go somewhere. Very nice to be go to someplace pleasurable. I don't want to go to someplace that's unpleasurable. <laughs> but that's only this. It's only this much. It only holds this much. It's only this. It only lasts this long. You see. And for those of us who have seen the finiteness of experience, we get okay. So so what? It's pleasurable. So that's really fine. And. Many of you will have and have had in the past experiences in your meditation that are extraordinarily pleasurable. But with sobriety, and after three years there's the beginning of sobriety in your meditation, you think, you know, so what? There's no big deal. And you realize that that's not going to be ever be our salvation. And to work ambitiously is itself a put-off because the kind of tension that's required to be good so I can go to heaven, to have my, the opinions of being good, to have the moralistic divide of between being good and those who aren't and how good am I and how much better I need to be, that's enormous tension. That isn't relaxation. That's not healing. That's just wearing ourselves out for some cause. Okay, So that's unwise view and unwise intention. Now we go to the last one, which is wise view and wise intention. So what does wise intention look like when coupled with wise view? Wise intention, let's just break this down for a second and look at what intention has two aspects. It has um, a primary and a secondary intention. Each of us carry a primary intention with us. The primary intention is that yearning of the heart that all of us have felt, or we wouldn't be here, which pulls us towards something. Now, the way we normally get pulled is that we project that yearning of the heart externally and we go seeking it. We go looking for whatever it is that we're yearning for as somehow thinking, because that's, see, that's wise intention but unwise view. It's outside of me and I need to grasp it and bring it in. But if the view is interconnectedness, I don't have to go searching for it. This thing is inside. And therefore, if I just stop the searching and allow myself to be pulled by that yearning, that primary intention, you'll find a nice coupling, a nice alignment of view and intention that will take you deeper and more intimately into the space of connection. You see that? So wise view and wise intention. Now, 
all of us have secondary intentions that those are the parts of us that are still unresolved in heart. We have desires for ourselves. We have goals that we have set that we want to master. All of those are perfectly fine. Uh, but we, what we do is we misread the primary intention for these secondary intentions. And we think that if we can get this goal, if we can find the perfect mate, if we can you know, just get ourselves through school, if we can get the best job we can or land the best house or whatever way it is, then somehow there'll be this sense of fulfillment. The fulfillment, the need for fulfillment, the sense of fulfillment, the needing for completion, the yearning for completion is the primary intention, but it gets fractured as the primary intention comes into the mind, the mind looks in terms of that sense of completion in terms of external things. It says, I need this for completion. I need that for wholeness. I think Christ said, be whole like your Father in heaven is whole. And he wasn't talking about the objects of the world. He's talking about an inward wholeness. So the resolution, the resolution of this primary and secondary intention is to look at the secondary intentions, the way we still lead our, lead our life into a further sense of pursuit and grasping after it. We look at that and we see, is the payoff of what we are trying to gain, the payoff of gaining it, worth the pain of the trying to gain it? Is the payoff of gaining it worth the pain of trying to gain it? And if you look with any sense of objectiveness, the Buddha tells us that it never is. It's a given. Whatever result you have will not be worth the pain of trying to acquire it or the pain of trying to hold on to it once it has been acquired. The tension associated with it. And so you go, okay, I got it now. Secondary intentions don't work. And as we clean up the mess of where we have fractured our secondary intentions, guess where that energy goes? It doesn't just get dispelled. There's a One of the laws of thermodynamics talks about the conservation of energy and it's no different spiritually. Once the energy is no longer going towards secondary desires, it goes into the primary intention. And it feeds that sense of yearning. Now, with that additional feed into the primary intention, we're willing to go into areas of ourselves that we never would have thought of going as long as we thought we could placate through desire or placate our pain through desire as long as we could cover over the holes that we have denied in ourselves through patching forth the objects of our world to cover those holes, we'll just forget about the holes. We'll never look, we'll never be honest with ourselves. But now, once we see that we can't do that, that no one's going to take away our pain, we are left having to be very honest. So with the increased energy in our primary intention comes enormous honesty and sincerity of heart. And hunger. Hunger. 
And now we have two of the three factors, three aspects of the path aligned. There are, of course, eight aspects of it, but we're only going to be talking about three tonight. And the next lineup, the next one that has to line up with wise view and wise intention is wise effort. Again, this is where most of us falter. Our effort is from our old paradigm. And the new paradigm requires new, a new alignment of effort, a new kind of effort. It requires something else from us because the effort of trying to acquire or get over is the effort coming from the sense of differentiation of the old paradigm. The sense of trying to improve, the sense of trying to adjust, the sense of trying to uh, alleviate, the sense of trying to wait something out. All of the different strategies that we have to get over a problem are from an old paradigm. And if we continue to use that muscle, we continue to reinforce the old paradigm even if we are stating it that we are doing this for interconnectedness. We're just calling the old paradigm of differentiation a new name. Please listen. Because as a species, if we want to get out of this thing, we have got to change the way we are with one another. And I know it's a hard day and I know you're just hanging on there just barely able to listen at all. But this is an important talk, an important topic. And so what does effort look like when we drive it in alignment with the wise view and wise intention? What's it look like? We have to sober up. We have to see that we can work against ourselves and in fact we have been working against ourselves to make this thing work. It just doesn't work unless it's all in alignment. I can't think in terms of subject and object and expect that view to suddenly change or the intention to change behind it which is desire or fear for myself or the effort to be ambitious in trying to get over. You can't expect the thing to work in accordance with the way it's pointing if we have things in misalignment. So this final sense of how we use our energy, not just intentionally, but energetically, use our, our energy so that it can serve it can serve the view, the new paradigm and the new view. And so what does it look like now? You see, when you have something arising in you which you perceive as a problem, perhaps it's your anger, perhaps it's the old idea or thought about your mother, perhaps it's an attitude that you've lived with and you feel yourself in contention with it and you feel yourself anxious about it and stressed. You can be pretty clear that if you have that view of it, that you're going to be working it in an unwise direction. But what if you relax to it? You see how relaxation, suddenly the boundaries are dissolved. You let it in. If you start letting something in, aren't you more connected to it? If you put up a barricade or defense or turn away from it, you're just reinforcing the view that it's outside of you 
and needs to be resolved as an external thing. But when we turn towards it and we relax with it, psychically and physically, we open up. We allow, we allow it to join us, to be a part of us. And so we can begin to see, whoa, this is amazing. This I suddenly realize what I need to do here. Yes, we have to bring our attention back to bear upon the object. But how we bring it back? Is it best done through hardness or through relaxation? Relaxation already brings, in this notice for instance, if you think it's your control that's bringing the breath back, think again. You never were in control of finding and discovering uh, wakefulness. When you wake up to the fact that you haven't been following the breath, you wake up after the fact that you are now reconnected. It wasn't your control. It wasn't your effort that allowed you to reconnect. That happened through your intention. Intentionality now becomes the mechanism for control. What we thought was our control was really our intentionality, our heartfelt intentionality. The intentionality brings is the substitute for control that we used to have in the old paradigm. But you can't fake intentionality. You have to really feel compelled and want it. And as you do so, you will find yourself more and more realigned with an, with an intrinsic wakefulness that is here. This may be very radically different than the way most of you have practiced. But doesn't it talk to your heart? Isn't it saying something to you that you go, yes, this makes sense. My God, this makes sense. It's like hearing, you know, a voice, a foghorn, you know, in, the, in all of the... When I understood this, it saved me enormous amount of turmoil. And I don't ever remember anyone telling me this. And it's so obvious. So what is what are some additional ways that wise effort? Well, one way that wise effort works is that there's a release, a relaxation and a release. Rather than a further resistance, we release the resistance. We release the need to control. And the universe shifts because we're not operating under the strategies of separation. The perception shifts. And we don't see separately, separately as distinctly separate as we used to. Now this is a very, very, very underlined, conditioned, has enormous conditioning, this sense of seeing perceptually separate. And I'll talk about that in later talks. So there's a lot of momentum to keep picking up the old paradigm again and again and again. But if we are committed to changing ourselves as a species, what better way to do it than to relax in to something intrinsically here 
rather than trying to create a false utopia. And, in fact, it is here. Relax, release. Relinquish the need to be pretentious. The relinquishing of pretension. And the rejoining of our heart. Rejoining. Instead of turning away or using or allowing attitudes of mind or dispositions to turn us away from life, to avoid, to turn... Anytime you feel yourself moving away, arrest that movement because we're reinforcing the old sense of separation. That's it. Stay connected. Rejoin the conversation. Rejoin the situation. Keep yourself there. And I don't mean... I always have to say this, and it seems so obvious to me, that if it's an abusive or unhealthy situation, you separate yourself far away from it. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the the, the nuances of irritation and annoyance and frustration that we're creating through the labeling, through the investing in what it, the sounds around us, the sights and smells and sounds around us. We keep things distant from our internal... We keep things distanced by internally invoking our wrath upon them. We force things out of ourselves because we want no part of them. We force ourselves to be fractured. Because then we can be in control or what we perceive as being in control. And this is a turning around completely. This is an opening of the heart. This is Christ on the mount with his arms open and bearing. Everything come. All things come. Everyone come. That's what he's saying. Just through that very simple mudra To be whole like our Father in heaven is whole. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.